We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Support for this podcast comes from Wild Turkey Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Let's tune in to their one-on-one with Jamal, a real bartender from Old Fourth Ward in Atlanta. I really get into the backstory of whatever I'm pouring. Out of respect. There are literally years of experience behind these bottles. Wild Turkey, same recipe since 1942. If you want a true classic, this is what you want to order. Wild Turkey. Wild Turkey Distilling Company, Lawrenceburg, Kentucky. Copyright 2020, Campari, American, New York, New York. Never compromise, drink responsibly. Welcome to another Run It Back edition of the Rotowire NBA podcast. Our first three rewatches focused on playoff games from the 2000s. This week, we'll switch it up a little bit and go to the Olympics, specifically the 2012 gold medal game between the USA and Spain. Second consecutive matchup between these two countries for the gold medal. USA, of course, won in 2008 with the Redeem team. Uh, it's another really impressive U.S. roster, though, led by 33-year-old Kobe, prime LeBron, prime Chris Paul, uh, and a young Kevin Durant making his first Olympics appearance. But there's a lot of talent on the Spanish side as well. The Gasol brothers gave the U.S. a lot of trouble in this game, made for a really good game and, and one that was close throughout. I have Alex and James standing by. We'll break down the game, how the roster came together, who maybe should have been on this team that wasn't, who was on this team that maybe shouldn't have been, uh, how this team compares to, to past Team USA rosters, and a whole lot more. So a lot to cover. Let's get to it. Are you kidding me? 
Okay, we have James Anderson, Alex Barutha on the line for our fourth NBA rewatch. Uh, although we'll be getting away from the NBA for this one, pivoting to the 2012 London Olympics, the gold medal game, Team USA against Team Spain. This was on August 12th of 2012. It was a 10 a.m. Eastern time tip. Uh, so 9 a.m. where I would have guessed that we were at at the time. Did you guys make a point to watch this game live? I think I did. I feel I feel like I distinctly remember watching the whole game, but I don't really remember like where I was or who I was with or anything. Um, I think I, I actually may have watched it with some friends, but I, I can't quite remember. I don't think I did. I I I've watched fewer Olympic games than you probably would imagine. <laughs> I think I watched it live, but not with friends. I mean, it was it would have been a pretty tough sell. You know, at the time, I guess I would have been home from college, and like to get to get friends to come over at nine a.m. to to like one of our parents' house to watch the game just probably wasn't happening. But um, yeah, I mean, I I think it was one that was it was a reasonable enough time that I, I believe I watched it live. But as we were talking off air, like the the game itself maybe wasn't as memorable as I thought it was going in. You know, it, it was a, a close game, you know, one that based on the rosters was was probably closer than most expected. Team USA was a 20 point favorite in this game and it ended up being quite a bit closer than that. Um, but it, it was a game that was kind of a slog, I thought, in a lot of ways for Team USA. You know, they, they shot the ball pretty well early on, but I, I thought Spain going to a 2-3 kind of 3-2 defense for the entirety of this game really, really threw the USA off in a lot of ways and, and forced it into more of kind of a one-on-one shooting contest than I, I think this specific USA roster would have preferred. Yeah. I mean, there was there, they, they, Spain definitely tried to slow the game down. I mean, I think I really only remember uh, the USA having like maybe four or five fast breaks. And I feel like they all came in the second half uh, kind of when Spain was, had some tired legs and, uh, was getting a little careless with the ball, but uh, yeah, in the first half, and the first half teams were both teams were coming out firing. Um, but yeah, it was it was definitely slower than than I remember because most of the Team USA highlights you see, like if you look up a highlight mix on YouTube, it's just a ton of like fast break dunks and alley oops and stuff. And this game was definitely, I mean, this game was really competitive uh, for for mostly uh, for most of the game. Yeah, it kind of reminded me of. Uh like a 90s or maybe early 2000s type of type of style where I think for the most part both sides were playing really good defense and um yeah I mean it it was not a not a 2012 level NBA game in terms of the pace and the the freedom of movement certainly not and a lot of fouls too I mean Marcus All had four fouls in this game I think midway through the second quarter Kevin Love LeBron we're both in foul trouble for Team USA. There just wasn't a lot of flow. And, and like you said, Alex, a few fast breaks here and there. And, you know, a lot of them, it seemed like Team USA was, you know, one step or one pass away from a fast break. And there was a foul in the backcourt to stop it. You know, the, the, the game just didn't have a, a great flow to it. Um, but at the same time, you know, really interesting to see this many great players, um, you know, how, how they interact, what what kind of roles players who you know we're used to seeing in one context in the NBA end up fitting uh, when they're on this team. And I, I think for me, the guy, you know, first and foremost, who who stuck out in that regard was LeBron, who, 
you know, it, for most of this tournament, you know, I think he ends up probably being the best or maybe the second best player on this team. You know, you, you could kind of quibble with Kevin Durant, who ends up setting the Olympic scoring record, um, or at least the Team USA scoring record for the tournament. You know, he has 30 points in, in the gold medal game. Uh, he's kind of the focal point of the offense, but we see LeBron playing a lot more off ball, certainly than we're ever used to in the NBA. And and against the zone, you know, he's he's flashing to the middle. You know, he's he's catching it kind of at the elbow and making decisions there. It was it was just a very different version of LeBron than we're used to seeing now and a very different version of LeBron than the one who had just won his first finals with the Heat about two months before this. I think he was just really trying to stay within the team construct of like Mm -hmm. not taking bad shots. I mean, he passed on a lot of early clock jumpers that I think were, you know, I think it was the right move to pass on those. I I don't think... Uh, you want to just be chucking up shots early in the clock against his own. So I think he was just passing uh, to his teammates a lot and trying to be as unselfish as, as possible, just given the talent around him. Yeah, I think I think that's completely fair. And, you know, I, it was kind of Kevin Durant, who who is the number one guy for Team USA in this game. I don't know if that was by design or if that was just him you know, being a little bit more willing than guys like LeBron to shoot from the perimeter, you know, in a game where... Um, that was clearly the route that I think Spain was forcing Team USA. Um, you know, we saw a lot of KD, a lot of a lot of Kobe, who is, you know, weirdly kind of saved until uh, the fourth quarter of this game. You know, he of course starts for Team USA, but sits a lot of the first half, uh, then comes back and has some moments in the second. But Team USA um, rolls out a starting five of Tyson Chandler at center, LeBron and Kevin Durant in the front court, Kobe. And Chris Paul in the backcourt against the Gasols, Rudy Fernandez, Juan Carlos Navarro, and Jose Calderon for Spain. And I think you know one thing that became the theme not only of this game but but of really this entire tournament is Team USA just not really having a dominant interior presence, which is a major departure from if you go all the way back to '92. You know that dream team having Patrick Ewing, um, you know even Charles Barkley, David Robinson, Carl Malone, like really dominant big men and you know they say it multiple times on the telecast like they really really missed Dwight Howard which in 2012 you know Dwight Howard was was certainly past his prime but did we, did we really know it yet you know he he had just been traded to the Lakers I think two or three days before the gold medal game at, at, at halftime I believe of the semifinal game that trade went through so both he and Andre Guadalla who's also on this roster uh, both of those guys end up being traded just before the gold medal game and you know, they mentioned it right at the top of the telecast that Kobe Bryant was, you know, thrilled. And, you know, he was obviously excited that Dwight Howard was was joining him in L.A. Pau Gasol, of course, was still in the Lakers at that point. So I, I think they really, really missed Dwight Howard. They really missed Chris Bosh, who had been hurt in the NBA playoffs uh, that that summer and, and ended up needing uh, surgery and, and misses this game. Blake Griffin was supposed to be on this roster. He He made it as one of the final spots out of training camp and then tears his meniscus uh, a week or two before the Olympics start. So he has to be replaced by Anthony Davis. 19 year old Anthony Davis, probably not going to give this team too much. You know, he had some really nice moments against, you know, the horrible teams that they're facing in the pool round and in the exhibition games. But I, one of the things that really stuck out to me from the game itself is just how, how bad Tyson Chandler was. Yeah. He wasn't really able to do anything like offensively defensively he wasn't even able to really stop Pau Gasol like Pau Gasol didn't really have to see a uh, he didn't have any issues scoring on Chandler and so 
if that's going to be the case, then you might as well just throw more shooters into the game if, if you're the USA and then, um, you know, just get the offensive boost and uh, or you just figure the offensive boost is going to be better than what you theoretically lose on defense. I didn't I didn't think Chandler was as bad as as you made him out to be, Nick. I think to me, Paul Gasol was the best player in this game, and I mm-hmm. think it was more to do with Paul Gasol than Tyson Chandler. I just I don't know which NBA big was stopping this version yeah. of Paul Gasol in this format. And I mean, I, I really think uh, the entire key to the game was Mark Gasol's foul trouble and the fact that they were without their you know one B player for basically a, a 15 minute of, of game time stretch and mm-hmm. that they were able, even able to keep it close with that circumstance, I think was just a testament to how well Powell was playing. But I, I, you know, there were other players on the USA that I thought had really bad games. Tyson Chandler, I wasn't expecting him to be better than he was. I mean, this, this was still, you know, he was anchoring, that Mavs finals team like a year before this, uh, their defense. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think he was washed up or anything. I just think Paul Gasol was that good. Yeah, maybe that's a better way to put it. I, I It just seemed like, you know, early on, there were, I remember there were two straight misses where Tyson Chandler just got like straight up bodied by Paul Gasol for offensive rebounds. Like he was in position and Gasol just like threw him aside. And maybe that was more Gasol than Chandler. And, and Gasol went on a, a big run to begin the third quarter. I think he had... 13 of Spain's first 15 points at one point in the quarter. I, I mean, Kevin Durant had 30 in this game, but I'm with you, James. I, I think Pau Gasol was the best player on either team. Um, well, yeah, I mean, he, he was just uh, pretty unstoppable. I mean, you basically would have needed to just double double him at this point. I mean, the, the way the international game works, it's very much sort of a throwback uh big men still kind of can dominate in the NBA type of throwback game. You know, it's not a 2012 NBA game where uh, big men aren't as vital. I mean, I think he was just able to have his way and uh, they're just the, the drop off behind like Chandler to the next best post defender on this team. I mean, it's, it's one thing if you are just asked to guard Pau Gasol, but you have another like weak side uh post defender that that can come and help you out uh, if he gets by you with his first array of moves but i mean they just didn't have anyone that could help chandler so i mean he was really kind of driving the show and uh it was kind of a bummer that we didn't get to see him and uh mark play together a ton in this because i think that would have just made it much more interesting i i know i know serge Ibaka was getting a ton of credit from the um broadcast broadcast crew but i actually thought serge Ibaka had a pretty mediocre game relative to just how many open looks he was getting because of how much attention gasol was drawing it's all i mean he was yeah obviously he was he was incredible in this game like i think i mean gasol didn't he only made um like six all-star games in his nba career but a lot of that was due to injuries like you look at his game logs it's a lot of like 60 game seasons but I mean, he made his first All-Star game when he was 25. He made his last All-Star game when he was 35, which I completely forgot that he was an All-Star both of his years in Chicago. I think yeah. I, I I repressed that, I think. But, I mean, for his career, he's 17 points, nine rebounds, three assists, a block and a half. Um, just, like, in, 
really, really good for a long time in the NBA and internationally. So, yeah, I mean, I think I think this is a good example of like just how great he was in the post and how hard he was to stop when when he got going. And I think at this point, he's probably a year or two past his actual prime, right? I mean, I think in the 08 Olympics, we probably saw like, yeah. the peak Pau Gasol. Like, at this point, he's two years removed from helping L.A. to to its second straight title. And, you know, Arguably, maybe should have been the finals MVP. Some people would say he was the most valuable player in that series. But at this point, you know, he's he's definitely on the downswing. He, he missed 17 games in that previous NBA season. And, and by that point... You know, I, I, the Lakers obviously getting Dwight Howard that that offseason or right before this game were, were kind of, it seemed at the time, you know, maybe reloading for one final run behind Kobe, who at this point is 33 years old. Uh, but we know how that went. And, and they were never really truly a contender again after 2010 or 2011. So we're, we're seeing, you know, kind of the downslope of Pau Gasol. And he was still, you know, like we said, the, the best player in this game and really, really athletic even for for being 32 years old. Did Spain like ever? So they never really had an Olympics where both Gasols were in their prime because this was probably like a year or two after Pau's prime and a year or two before Mark's prime. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, obviously they had a lot of other talent on this team, but um, no, never, never really had those two working together. And I, I think even though Marc Gasol wasn't quite the Marc Gasol that we know um, in two, in this 2012 games, like he was coming off of his first All Star bid. You know, he was. He was 15, 9, 3 assists, 2 blocks, 1 steal in 2011-12. So I don't think he was quite at his peak, but he's 27. You know, he's getting pretty close. So I think this was probably going to be the year, or at least the closest, that we would get to that. And you know, Marcus Gasol plays 17 minutes in this game. And in those 17 minutes, he's 8 of 10 from the field, 17 points, 2 rebounds, 1 assist, uh, no turnovers. I mean, he was, he was arguably just as good as Powell when he was on the court. But unfortunately, he missed virtually... The entire second quarter, most of the third quarter, um, and you know, ends up playing less than half of the game. And yeah, I don't know if he's out there for 31 minutes. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe Spain does actually win this game. I mean, there were there were times when it, it certainly looked like it was going to be a little bit closer than it ended up being down the stretch. You know, and it ends up being 107 to to 100 United States. Um, but part of that was you know some late shots by Spain, some missed free throws by the U.S. It, it wasn't ultimately a game that was decided in the last 30 seconds or a minute. But, you know, if, if Marcus all doubles his minutes load, I, I think it's fair to say that that things are probably a little bit different. I, I assume it's a five foul max. In yeah, it international. Is. yeah. I mean, I, I always think coaches are too conservative with how they manage foul trouble. Uh, I wonder if Spain's coach maybe regrets not, uh, bringing him back in sooner because I mean, it's the gold medal game. Like right. you might as well just get as many minutes possible out of your best players as you can. If he falls out with like 10 minutes to go, well, that's, you know, whatever you, you at least had a chance to give him as many minutes as possible. So I, I feel like that was mismanaged to some degree. Yeah. I was surprised how quickly he picked up those four. Yeah. I think I made a note of it um, that he, he had the fourth foul. I think at like the five, 529 mark in the second quarter and you know I, I talked at the top about how many fouls there were in this game it was it was obvious that it, it was slowing things down but I guess I didn't realize that he'd had three and it in some ways a little bit reckless I mean I'm, I'm usually with you James that I think you know you, ha- you should be more aggressive than you know rather than letting guys waste away on the bench for two quarters but uh, to leave him in the game with three that early I think was maybe uh, the, the bigger error by, by Spain's coach 
How how do you feel like uh, how do you guys feel like this game was officiated in general? Like, did you think it was consistent? Did you think it was bad? Because I thought there were I thought there were some points where it was really inconsistent, or at least on some of the. I mean, I mean, I, I, one instance, Chris Paul got like tackled going for a three, and the refs did not call it, seemingly because the guy who tackled Chris Paul did not touch his elbow. So uh, obviously, it's not a shooting foul. Uh, um, it was. I thought it was fine in general, but there were some weird the shooting the shooting stuff was confusing to me. They were calling a lot of fouls on physical box outs, mm-hmm. uh, which I didn't really care for. There was one play. Um, can't even remember which two players were involved, but it was like a a good one-on-one, like on, on, on kind of the left wing. And it was just kind of a good battle. And they just blew the whistle, like right in the middle of the play. And it was just sort of kind of anticlimactic. So I, I think they were a little, I think they were a little loose with the whistles. Uh, I mean, you could, on the highlights, it was just like, well, yeah, I guess he kind of got like his arm on him on that box out and that type of thing. Like, so it's like you could sort of justify a lot of them by looking at the replay, but it just, it really kind of, made the game a little choppy yeah I, I don't remember any calls that that were just like horrific individually but i think it was just the accumulation of a lot of ticky tack um you know kobe got called for one of those box outs that you're talking about there were a lot of um i think Pau Gasol picked up one on a moving screen that was a little bit questionable like it just it i don't i wouldn't say that there were a lot of bad calls it was just so many calls that it, it really affected the flow of the game and i think it hurt Spain more. I mean, the, the Marcus Alt part's obvious, but like Spain, yeah. just they they went what like seven deep, and the U.S. went like ten deep. So I mean, I think that definitely favored the U.S. Yeah, USA um, basically what basically went nine deep in this game with with Durant playing thirty eight minutes, LeBron thirty, uh, Kobe twenty seven, Chris Paul thirty three, Love nineteen, Melo twenty one, Darren Williams ten, and then Westbrook and Chandler each playing nine with. James Harden, Anthony Davis, and Andre Iguodala are basically your your victory cigar players on this team. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about the construction of the roster. Um, you know, so this is four years after 2008, which which they called the Redeem Team, and kind of the first year where USA basketball, after falling into, uh, I think, a little bit of a lull. You know, they they take gold in 2000 in Sydney, and then 2004 is just a complete disaster. You know, bronze medal, which for most countries, that's a pretty successful Olympics. But for for the U.S., um, you know, based on the amount of talent that they had there, it was it wasn't a terrible team. You know, I, I, Allen Iverson was on that team, Tracy McGrady was on that team. I believe Tim Duncan was there. You had young, long, young LeBron, young Carmelo. I, I think the U.S. thought that it had sent enough talent to win, and it just ended up being a, a complete disaster from a from a team chemistry, from a roster building standpoint. Um, so they take bronze in '04. In 2006, in the FIBA World Championships, they take third despite, again, sending a pretty loaded roster, um, you know, minus guys like Kobe and Duncan, but still enough talent that they should have done better than that. Uh, they end up losing to Greece in that tournament. Um, and then in 2008, you know, they kind of reassert themselves with getting all, basically every single A-list player that you would want um, signs up in 2008. Mostly the same in 2012. I, I think getting the recommitment from Kobe Bryant, getting the recommitment from LeBron, who's 27 at that point, Kobe's 33, and then adding Kevin Durant, who at this point is 23 years old and, you know, did just lose in the finals to LeBron. But, you know, at this point is pretty much, I think, the consensus second best player in the league. Maybe Kobe's still 
uh, you know, holding on to that a little bit for some people. But, you know, the roster in full is LeBron, Kobe, Durant, Tyson Chandler, Carmelo Anthony, Iguodala, Harden, Westbrook, Darren Williams, Chris Paul, Kevin Love, Anthony Davis. As I mentioned before, Blake Griffin was supposed to be on this team instead uh, of Anthony Davis. So that's that's why Davis ends up making it as kind of that Christian Leitner spot. The final cuts uh, other than Anthony Davis were Rudy Gay and Eric Gordon. And there was also a list of players who dropped out. Chauncey Billups, LaMarcus Aldridge, Lamar Odom. Chris Bosh, Derek Rose, who, of course, got hurt in that previous playoffs, uh, and Dwayne Wade, who is the leading scorer on the 08 team. Um, you know, I, I, with him, I, I imagine Dwayne Wade would have had a spot on this team if he wanted, but, um, you know, he was kind of starting to decline a little bit and certainly health-wise uh, in 2012. So so he ends up sitting out. But overall, I mean, you you hit on it a little bit, James, when I was when I was going in on Tyson Chandler. It's, it's really hard to look through the league in 2012 and say, you know, with Dwight Howard hurt, with Chris Bosh hurt, like, why do they not have this center on the team? Because it's just kind of a bad spot. If you look at some of the better American-born bigs in the league at that time, it's like, was Al Jefferson going to make a difference for this team? Or were you going to dip down into, like, Roy Hibbert, DeMarcus Cousins, DeAndre Jordan territory? You could kind of go the other way and try to convince, like, an aging Tim Duncan. Um, Andrew Bynum was hurt at the time. He was going through the knee stuff. Al Horford and Joakim Noah, both ineligible, you know, because they played for, for other countries in the past. So, you know, they were kind of out of options, which, which sounds strange to say, but Tyson Chandler, I think was, was pretty much the best option available in terms of healthy guys. That was not a prime, uh, stretch for centers at all. I mean, that was like, even a few years before that, it was like Andrew Bogut was going to make the all-star game borderline, like every single year. Um, and yeah, it was kind of a, that was the, that was the era I guess in NBA history where people are like, is the center position dead? There are no good centers anymore. Mm-hmm. And we've kind of rebounded from that, but that was, it was pretty dire there for a, a for like a five year stretch. I think well, Marcus Aldridge could have been more useful on the roster than some of the, the lower end bench guys. And I think if uh, a healthy Chris Bosch, I think would have been huge for this team. But mm-hmm. um, I just, I don't really think Dwight Howard plays a international friendly game at all. Uh, at least prime Dwight Howard, because he's just so uh, like, he was just never willing to accept those sort of complimentary piece roles, even when it made the most sense until this, this year with the Lakers, like the first year that he's actually accepted that type of role. And they weren't going to be giving Dwight Howard a bunch of post touches or anything. So I, I really think Chris Bosh was probably the one that was most missed. Um, but I do think LaMarcus Aldridge had a had a pretty good type of game for, for like a backup big in this sort of situation. And uh, I believe he was, I mean, he was pretty much mid-prime 2012, right? Um, so I think like, he, he could have been useful, but uh, I, I don't really think they missed anyone else. And Aldridge probably could have hit this international three also. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Closer line. Uh, they, they also note on the broadcast that the rims are twice as thick in the Olympics, which I did not know. That was a yeah. weird, weird fact. And you could tell, I mean, I, I know the guys, some guys note how it's sort of a little different shooting the international ball too, so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, the... <laughs> Weird to just double double thick the rims, <laughs> but, but um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be a real reason for that. It was just like, well, it's FIBA, so we need to change something. Let's just triple up on the rims. 
Um, one, one person who was not affected by that, Carmelo Anthony, who comes out firing off the bench in this game. But uh, earlier in the tournament against Nigeria, he had like arguably, I mean, this is, I mean, we know about Olympic Melo, so this, this is saying a lot, arguably his best uh, appearance ever, whether we're talking NBA, college, Olympics, playground, like those Chris Brickley sessions on Instagram, 37 points in 14 minutes against Nigeria during the pool play around 10 of 12 from three. That sets a Team USA scoring record. He breaks the record that was somehow held by Stefan Marbury uh, for, for single-game scoring. But 10 of 12 from three in 14 minutes for Melo. So we're, we're seeing arguably peak Olympic Melo at, at this point. Yeah, I think once a year I just pull up that the USA versus Nigeria game and watch it because it's, it's incredible. Like, the amount of amazing plays in that game. Like, I know the competition isn't obviously great, but, like, uh, it's not very often that you get to see players of like this caliber in a, in a competitive context mm-hmm. really like go. I mean, we see the all-star game and stuff, but that's not really competitive. I mean, it's more competitive than an all-star game, obviously. And, uh, well, there's, there's just a lot of fun. It's like an all-star game, but one team is led by Al Farouk Aminu. Yeah. Well, they, the other team is actually trying. That's the thing. I guess that's right. what I meant. <laughs> I've never seen that game. USA won, I mean, it was, I think it was was like the biggest blowout since 92, because I I think one of the biggest differences between this team and and the 92 team, like not even talking about the roster is just the, like the level of competition back then, you know, even like the the countries who were fairly good, you know, had had still not reached nearly the point that they would be at, you know, 20 years later now, but USA beat Nigeria 156 to 73. So what is the spread on that? Like 83 points? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so uh, despite 27 points from Mike Diago, what did you guys think of the presentation of this game TV-wise? I was shocked by the lack of energy from this, um, what, what seemed like like the local London TV crew. Yeah, it was it was so British. Like, I, I don't even know, like, it was just kind of, there were, like, awkward jokes. And, yeah, like you mentioned, it was kind of, uh, it was kind of lazy. They kept like throwing shots at Carmelo and KD for like taking open jumpers. Um, you know, these guys just shoot every time they touch it. Uh, meanwhile, you know, Juan Carlos Navarro spends the first six minutes of the game launching every time he touches the ball. And that doesn't get any sort of commentary. So I thought it was just kind of I, it was it was weird for sure. Well, I mean, I I. I am 50 percent British, so I I. <laughs> I, I like I like the British jokes, but I, I thought the some of the play by play was just horrendous. Um there was a Kobe three where he yes. bricked a three, got fouled, and somehow or actually I don't know if he missed he might have just missed rim and backboard completely, but he definitely didn't get any rim and the play-by-play guy thought it went in i like where were they sitting these guys like up in like the absolute nosebleeds like how do you how do you <laughs> think of three that misses that badly like the net like the net didn't it's not like it was even one of those air balls where it like grazes the net like it just missed everything and he somehow thought it went in and kept talking about how like they're waving off the basket and stuff like that and yeah. the the color guy like refuses to like correct him so he just keeps talking about how this three went in (laughs) that was that was the defining moment of this game for me i rewound that two times i could not believe it like he kobe is shooting his second of three free throws and the announcer is still talking about 
how he can't believe that they waved off the basket. Like never, <laughs> never at any point does either one acknowledge that they're just blatantly wrong. Yeah, and there, I mean, there were definitely at least a half dozen times where he called someone by the wrong name. Um, yep. But I, a, as I've learned, Darren Williams mix up. Yeah, as I've learned in this since we've been doing uh, these lookbacks on on games, there's there's at least three or four of those in every game. Even even greats like Kevin Harlan have been have been missing some of those. But um, yeah, I mean it it was it was pretty it was pretty half assed by the uh, the broadcast crew. It w- it was like a tennis crew calling basketball. It had the energy of like tennis slash golf, but that that was not the sport being played. No. Yeah, you, you mentioned some of the mischaracterizations of players. Uh, they called Darren Williams Duran Williams the entire game. Kevin Love's uncle being a beach boy was something that was heavily touched on for a while. That was strung out for like a four-minute conversation. But I'm actually okay with that. I, I don't think it's talked about enough that his his uncle was in the Beach Boys. <laughs> yeah, no, that that, that was uh, one of the, the less reprehensible uh, things. Uh, I mean... <laughs> I got a I got a kick out of like some of the shade they were throwing, like um, you know, just stuff with like Kobe where they would just be like, and you know how much he loves to shoot, and like yep. <laughs> and like uh, there there was one where like Carmelo Anthony with a rare assist, which I, yep. I got a kick out of, um, <laughs> and and honestly, you know, I know Juan Carlos Tavares, uh field goal percentage was, was what like forty percent or something at the end of the game, but I thought he had like. La Bamba, as I will call him from now on, uh, he he had some of the my favorite plays of the game. And even though he only shot like forty percent, like there's no way that, that that game's within twenty points without him because he was really the only guy on Spain that was taking any threes uh, with any sort of conviction at all. So I mean, they needed to hit threes obviously to mm-hmm. keep pace. So. Um, I think he was just doing what he had to do. And it, I thought it was pretty like there was a play on the baseline where he just drove right by LeBron. Like LeBron was on him one-on-one. He drives right by LeBron and, and dishes it to one of the Gasol guys for a dunk. Uh, like I thought he played as well as you could expect, like a 35 year old uh, guy who was clearly dealing with all kinds of physical issues at this time. Like they were surprised he's even playing in this game. Like I thought yeah. he played pretty well. I mean, he, He's one of those, I mean, basically, uh, I mean, a ton of the guards on this Spanish team were guys who were always, like, rumored to come to the NBA or they came to the NBA yep. and then they went back. Like, he's one of those guys. He was a two-time MVP. Like, he won the Spanish ACB one and the EuroLeague one. Sergio Rodriguez, Sergio Yule's another guy. Obviously, Jose Calderon is in this game. Um, like, you know, so it was, it was cool to be able to see him after you just kind of hear about these guys. You never really see them until the Olympics come around. And it was, like, pretty obvious that he was a very good player, maybe not like as much of a passer as I kind of expected. Like he was just kind of, you know, he, he's a playmaker for himself, but he was, I mean, yeah, he kept them. I mean, the, the threes and the shooting that he got off to early in the game made it so that, you know, they could, uh, you know, kind of take their foot off the gas and go through pow for larger Mm -hmm. portions of the game and keep it close. Kind of a underrated part of this game is I, I, by my count, Spain had nine guys who had either played in the NBA, were playing in the NBA, uh, or were drafted. And and Navarro, like you said, uh, was one of those guys who, he was drafted all the way back in 2002 and ended up coming over for one season. He played played 82 games for Memphis, made 30 starts in 2007, 2008, and then he got out. So he, he played one year in the NBA 
And that's kind of the story with a lot of these guys where, you know, Rudy Fernandez came over, I think yeah. played three or four years. Victor Claver, who comes off the bench, uh, played played some years in Portland, I believe. Um, you know, and, and obviously the, the Gasols are kind of on another level. But uh, a lot of these guys were, were stars overseas. And it, it seems like with the exception of the Gasols, didn't necessarily love the NBA game. You know, I remember like Rudy Fernandez didn't leave the NBA because he had to. Um, I mean, he was somebody that just, you know, kind of preferred to play over in Spain. And that's obviously been the case for, uh, for Navarro as well. And even Sergio Ewell is one of those guys who it seemed like for 10 years, you know, you thought maybe he would come over and he, he never ended up doing that. So I, I thought it was a little strange that these guys had these opportunities and either never took them up or, you know, went to the USA and just found out that it wasn't for them. I mean, I, I mean, I think it's it's very it's a very different game, right? I mean, you're mm. there's there's much more emphasis on passing and and like sort of working within the team construct. Uh, and if you're just if you get sent to one of, I mean, at any given point in time, there are what like eight terrible situations in the NBA where like yeah. just being on this team at this given time is just not going to be very fun because of the players on the roster, whoever the coach is, right. like that. If you find yourself in the wrong spot uh, and you are like playing with just some uh, ball dominant guy who's not that good and your your coach really has no idea what he's doing, like I could totally see why you'd just be like, this isn't for me. Like I can I can see why like scouts thought Rudy Fernandez would be good in the NBA because he was like he was really fast in this game. Like his foot speed is pretty good. Obviously a good athlete. He was in the dunk contest. Um Figure he could yeah, uh, could run transition, make good backdoor cuts, shoot threes. But looking back on his stats now, like he was just not efficient, especially towards the end. Like his third year in the league, thirty-two percent from three. Then he was like basically the same percentage the next year. I think he just couldn't. I don't exactly know what it was, but it seems like he just couldn't hit the shots he wanted to hit in the NBA. Um, but yeah, he played four years, which was, I mean, that's a that's a decent stretch. It is, but I mean, I think he. Again, other than the Gasols, I think he was the guy, like you said, who really projected best in the NBA. And and I'm with James. You know, I, I think a lot of it is just situational. And I, I think him yeah. and Claver are kind of in the same spot where, you know, they both end up in Portland. And uh, full disclosure, I've never been to Spain, but I would imagine that going to Portland, Oregon, is a massive <laughs> culture shock compared to yeah. Barcelona. I mean, you're going like when you're talking about these sort of maybe maybe like best case scenario, Rudy Fernandez was going to be like a high end role player. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, you, what, what's more fun to be just the, the seventh man on the Blazers and every, nobody really knows how good you were in Spain or just being like the guy in Spain and getting to hang out with all your friends and everything like that. And everyone just having full respect for your accomplishments as a basketball player. I mean, I, I, I get why it's basically just been the Gasols. I mean, Calderon played a lot in the NBA, obviously, but yeah. Um, like when you're when you're as good as the Gasols, then I I could totally see why you would love playing against the best players in the world because everyone actually recognizes how good you are. Uh, but if you're just kind of going to be some role player and nobody's going to respect you, then I, I get it. Yeah, well, and part of it too is back then the money. You know, if you're a late first round pick, wasn't great. I mean, Fernandez for playing four NBA seasons only made five point six million. So. I think from like an opportunity cost standpoint, even if the salaries are lower in Spain, I think it becomes worth it just to be comfortable to have people speak your language. I mean, little things like that. Like if he, if he was making 10 million a year in the U S I'm sure he would have stuck it out longer, but I just don't think it was worth his time. 
No, probably not. Uh, <laughs> Nikola Miritich ended up doing the same thing, which was that was yeah. really funny. So yeah, he's, he's uh, kind of the latest example. There was one. There was a point in the game. It was around. I think we were around like two minutes into the second quarter, where I rewound uh, the tape so that I could start tracking a certain player's plus minus throughout the game um, because I, I could not find plus minus on any of the box scores of this no, game. Me neither. Uh, do you care to guess <laughs> which which player which player's plus minus I was tracking for Team USA? Russell Westbrook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were there were a couple like wild Westbrook plays uh, at that point. I think he had back-to-back turnovers right when he checked in in the second quarter. It, so I I did um, I did the I, I filtered out for garbage time so I didn't track the plus minus of when they emptied the bench at the end uh, but he was negative seven in eight competitive minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that checks out <laughs> so basically like what I was saying is like you just put Lamarcus Aldridge on this team, take Russell Westbrook off, and you probably win by 25, regardless yeah. of how much Marcus All plays. One of the things I had in my notes is Westbrook playing wildly, and and he's playing off ball, which you know maybe this is a preview of like the 2019 Houston Rockets experiment. But I wrote like I wrote in my notes like forgot how how uh, inconsistent he was back then, and then I looked at it, I was like, what has changed? Like I I think he's he still does this right now. Like I don't I don't know if Westbrook playing in the Olympics in 2020 makes any different decisions than he was back then. Well, don't you think that he, like of all the guys that you would classify as like quote unquote superstars from the past like 15 years, don't yeah. you think his game translates the absolute worst to, to the international game? Yes. And especially back then when I, I think, I think back then he was even more reliant on his athleticism and as we saw in this game, it, it just led, it just didn't, it just didn't mesh well with the flow of this game. And he was never going to be like the top, top dog ball handler, right? So it's no. like having Westbrook as just this sort of third guard, third or fourth guard who is always like kind of deferring, like to, like he didn't really want to bring the ball up the court. He wanted to pass to Chris Ball. Yep. And then he wanted to get the ball back, but like he just, it, it was, he just did not fit in at all. Like, I mean, if you're building, like we talk a lot about just building these dream teams, building like the, which 12 guys you should put on, on a U.S. team. Uh, I really think you, you have to think about like what a player's role is going to be. Like at what point would the U S have ever wanted Westbrook really to, to handle the ball in this type of game when you have Chris Paul, like, like, I mean, I, I just, and like LeBron and Kobe, certainly capable of, of initiating the offense as well. Um, it just was kind of one of those things where I think he was good enough at the time where it would have just been a, a big kind of slap in the face to not invite him. But I don't think he necessarily belonged there just from a fit standpoint. Yeah, and you you figure that if if like Chris Paul or, you know, Darren Williams got hurt that LeBron could just do more of the ball handling like that. You wouldn't necessarily need some like another ball handling guard. Like, I guess you have Harden um, also on this team, but I figure you could have gotten away with even even Iguodala at the time, you know, could run some guard. Um, so, yeah, Westbrook being on this team is crazy, although I don't know. Watch at some point in this game, I just looked at the screen and realized that like 
the Thunder had four players in this game. Yeah. Like, I, not to turn into Bill Simmons, but, like, the Thunder had four players in the gold medal game of the Olympics. And it's just insane. <laughs> Should we talk about the Harden trade? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that was coming not too long after this, right? <laughs> I, I mean, it must have been, right? A matter of weeks, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, oh, this, yeah, was, yeah, yeah. this was right. mid-August. Yep. Yep. Uh, yeah, we've, we don't see a lot of James Harden in this game. No. You know, like I said, he, he only played three minutes. He comes, or one minute, actually. Uh, just he didn't comes come in, in until, he didn't get in at all until garbage time. Yeah, he came in and, <laughs> I, did you guys think it was as funny as, as I did? that? So he's at the line. I, I think Team USA is, there's like 17 seconds left. Team USA is is only up six. And once again, the announcers are being pretty critical of, of Team USA celebrating. And they, they cut to the sideline view of Harden shooting what's like a fairly key free throw to make it a three possession game misses the first and like as he misses it you see team usa on the sidelines like Melo's like in the stands taking photos like guys are you know, they have like the flag out like everybody's just like jumping around and celebrating while the announcers are are trying to convince viewers that this is still a game early on i i can't remember exactly the context it, it may have been they were talking about like the refs having a nice opportunity to like you know uh like <laughs> do this for their job and uh, one of the other commentators was like, "Don't knight the USA already!" Like they were like very quick to like shut that shut that notion off. Yeah. And like I can understand that, you know, as like a, a as a foreign announcer, like wanting the underdog to win, like being very like pro Spain or Argentina or whoever ended up uh, in the NBA finals. But yeah, I agree. It was it, they were they were doing it in the kindest way possible, but you could tell they they really wanted Spain to win this one. I mean, part of why I don't watch a ton of Olympic games is because, like, I I find myself like rooting for the other team to get it close. Like, and I just <laughs> I don't I don't care enough about the U.S. winning to just want it to be a beatdown at any cost. So I just don't like if I know the U.S. is going to win by like thirty, I just don't really uh, get up for it. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I I definitely understand why you would just want uh, a close game at the end. So, James, you talked about Westbrook maybe not fitting on this team. And I, I think it was almost a little bit more surprising that Harden made the roster, even though he's a better fit. Um, I, I don't know that we fully knew it at the time. I mean, he, he still hadn't played for the Rockets. He was nowhere near current day James Harden at this point, you know, still coming off the bench for for a team that had had a nice playoff run. But, you know, he's 22-year-old James Harden. Like, who else would have fit, you know, other than LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, I think Blake Griffin would have been a lot of fun. I, I don't know that he's the greatest fit, but would have certainly contributed to this roster. But like when you look around the league in 2011, 2012, like should they have pivoted more to, you know, kind of some of the models that we've seen with some of the FIBA teams where they tried to build, you know, an actual quote unquote team. And we, I think we saw that in 08 too, with guys like Carlos Boozer, Michael Red, Tayshawn Prince, Jason Kidd, all making the roster. Uh, this year's team had had a little bit more high end star power, and it, it it feels like more of an all star build as opposed to a team build. Like would someone like a I don't know Kyle Korver, somebody like that, have made sense? I think Korver, so. They could um, they could just brought I mean, back thirty eight year old Jason Kidd. Redick. Um, yeah. I'm looking at yeah. I mean, I guess Steph Steph hadn't. Would this have been so? This would have been right after the eleven twelve season. Yeah. So Curry was yeah. coming off of a twenty three game season. Like this was the absolute yeah. peak of the ankle concerns. Right. 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 Um, Clay was only a year in. I don't. I don't think we knew how good he was going to be. I, I think he's kind of the obvious answer if this takes place in twenty fourteen. 
Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it was just kind of a... What about Dame? How? What's? Uh... I think he would have been one year in. So great. Like It would have been like having Donovan Mitchell on after a rookie year, I guess. Oh, yeah, no, I that was after. Yeah, that was his draft year. This was just kind of a perfect storm of like being stuck kind of in between a few different eras of... I mean, I, <laughs> I was a little surprised like d will was still playing at a decent level in 2012 just hey, because how, of how quickly he fell off how about that huge d will miss dunk at the end of the third quarter oh that was so funny <laughs> uh i mean it, it was i haven't seen darren williams play basketball in a very long time like I, I that was one of the notes i made is we have to talk about darren williams and i think he was slightly past his prime at this point but he's not too far removed from the who would you rather have darren williams or chris paul conversation that was Somehow legitimate for a while. Yeah, I mean, that, he only played 11 years. Like, it, it, it was over for him very quickly. He's he's a total cautionary tale of, like, how quickly point guards can, can lose it, like, once they... Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, he just had one of those bodies, too, where he was always surprisingly athletic in his peak. And, you know, once he lost that... Uh, uh, the 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 decline of Darren Williams probably um, requires its own sort of oral history or something like that because it just like that that Brooklyn team with like him and uh, like Gerald Wallace and like Paul Pierce and wasn't like that team people thought that team was going to be like a top two or three seed that year. Yeah, so he he basically had one more good year after this Olympic run, and that was the following season, 2012-13. To be fair, the Nets went 49 and 33 that season and they end up losing to the bulls in, in the first round of the playoffs. But I mean, that team was, you had 31 year old Joe Johnson, who's still you know very much in his prime, Darren Williams, young Brooke Lopez, Gerald Wallace, like you said, who is still, you know, a monster defensively at that point. Um, the problem is like beyond that top four, it gets pretty bad. Like the next, the next highest in minutes were Reggie Evans, Keith Bogans, CJ Watson, Andre Blotch. That's not going to get it done. It's it's just simply not. So I looked at the USA Select team, which is basically the, the group of young guys that they select during every Olympic or FIBA cycle to basically be the B team to scrimmage and you know use as bodies and practice and whatnot. And that was comprised of Kyrie Irving, John Wall, Ryan Anderson, Demarcus Cousins, DeMar DeRozan, Derek Favors, Paul George, Taj Gibson, Gordon Hayward, Kawhi Leonard, Clay Thompson, and I saved the best two for last. Jeremy Lin and Dewan Blair. <laughs> nice. Dewan Blair. Is any, any of those guys you feel like should have been on this roster? I love those Dewan Blair pit teams. Yeah. yeah you're pre- preaching to the choir on that, pal. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, John Wall would have been fun. I think I would have rather had John Wall than Russell Westbrook. I feel like that's kind of a horse apiece, but yeah. yeah. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what you're gaining with Wall, especially at that point in his career. Uh, passing. I, um, yeah, I mean, pass. Gordon, <laughs> I guess. yeah, just Gordon like the Hay- ability to pass. Gordon Hayward would have been a pretty solid fit. Yeah, um, I, think I, Kawhi, I can't remember. I, I can't remember how good he was in it, at that stage, though. So he took a while. I mean, he was he was coming off like a uh, eleven yeah. points per game yeah. season. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that would have been kind of a heat check by Colangelo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. 
I don't I don't really think there it's not like there's just some obvious snub. Like this past year there were a bunch of obvious like yeah. should have should have been on the roster guys and I don't really like other other than like LaMarcus I've just not really seen one. I mean it's like Mike did you say Mike Conley? No, I didn't say Mike Conley. That's an interesting one. I, I think that's actually a really good one. So he was coming off a year where he played 60 he's played 60 he only, games. Well, that was yeah, the lockout averaged, year. Well, oh, that was the lockout. Yeah, that's a good point. He averaged like 12 points. Yeah, I mean, it, it would have been a stretch, but I mean, I think he would have fit a bit better as like a backup guard. Do you think internally, like Coach K had these conversations about not bringing Russ, but they just felt like they had to for optics? Well, I, I just think there's so much that goes into the, these decisions beyond like X's and O's. Like, I mean, you have to, you really have to keep Nike happy first and foremost. Yes. And so I think Westbrook uh, Westbrook was sort of on that track of being a guy that was going to get his own shoe and stuff. So, um, I, I mean, I just, I don't think you have, and I think like, it's just, you want to keep all the stars happy. You don't want, uh, like if anyone doesn't want, like if LeBron doesn't want a guy on a roster, like Kobe doesn't want a guy on the roster, like you're just not bringing them. So, mm-hmm. uh, there's just a lot that goes into it beyond just who deserves it. So how do you think this team compares straight up to the 08 team? I think the 08 team is is better. I'm not sure. I mean, I think I think the 08 team may not be as deep. I don't really like the Boozer, Red, Prince, Darren Williams, like, you know, kind of bench crew. But having prime Dwight Howard, you have Bosch in there. You have Jason Kidd and Chris Paul. And I kind of like that more than 2012, where you have Tyson Chandler, you have like Iggy, Harden, Westbrook, still Darren Williams, rookie Anthony Davis. I think, I think the top end talent on 2008 is better. I, it's tough to say. I mean, you're getting younger Kobe, but you're also getting younger LeBron. You know, and you're you're basically you have no Dwayne Wade. I, it's tough to say. Like I, I think like the LeBron, Melo. Uh, Chris Paul trio is all better in 2012 than they were in 2008, but you're not getting prime Kobe. You're losing Dwayne Wade and you have a lot of youth at at the bottom of the roster. Like we talked about with Harden Westbrook, you know, even, even Durant is only 23, but I mean, I think what Durant gives them in 2012 is, is maybe even better than what Wade gives them in 08. And that's saying a lot because Wade was, was arguably (laughs) the best player on that team for a lot of the tournament. Yeah. And I mean, twenty-three-year-old Chris Paul is way better than twenty-three-year-old Westbrook. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's I think it's really close. I I don't I don't have a strong lean. I think the the low-end talent's probably worse on two thousand eight, like you mentioned, Alex, with like yeah. Boozer and Red. Um, I mean, is Jason Jason Kidd's what? He's thirty-five, so I don't really think having him on that team is like a huge a huge deal. Uh, no. I mean, if you look at it just from the perspective of like how many of these guys are going to be in the Hall of Fame, I think 10 out of 12 on the 2012 team make the Hall of Fame. And I think eight out of the 12 in 08 with the, the four non-Hall of Famers in 08 being Boozer, Red, Prince, and Williams. I think everybody else in 2012 gets in besides Williams and Tyson Chandler. I mean, Kevin Love will maybe be borderline. Uh, Iguodala, I guess, is certainly borderline. But I feel like with the way things are going, he probably gets in. But like those those four guys from 08 are like for sure definitely not getting in. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. 
Well, what about comparing to 92, which was very much a topic at the time? Uh, Kobe was asked about it, had some quotes saying that he thought, you know, the 2012 team would beat the 92 team. And then he was attacked by Charles Barkley, who claimed that only three players from this team would have even made the dream team. Uh, and, and Kobe kind of had to backtrack on those comments. I, I think straight up the 92 team is better. But I think the the one argument for 2012 is a lot of the guys on the 92 team were were pretty well past their prime. And a lot of those guys are the biggest names on the team, first and foremost being Larry Bird and Magic, who are 35 and 32, respectively. Yeah, but yeah, so Bird and Magic are past their prime. But you have prime Jordan, you have uh, you have prime Carl Malone, prime Stockton, prime Robinson, prime Ewing, prime uh, prime Pippen. Um, I mean, I I don't. I usually would. I I take issue with almost everything Charles Barkley says that has anything to do with comparing um, current players to past players. But I. I don't think it's that close, personally. Yeah, I I think the 92 team was better. I mean, the, the 2012 team, like, a lot of these guys aged into being Hall of Famers. Like, Harden, Westbrook, obviously, like Anthony Davis. Those guys now are excellent. So if you're just comparing how many Hall of Famers or how many All-NBA teams to how many All-NBA teams, I think 2012 can stack up. But, like, at the time, if you just transported age to age... I think the 92 team being the more experienced team and all these guys either basically being in their prime or their like late prime. Um, I think the 92 team is, is better. Yeah, I think that's well said. A lot of these guys we think about differently now than we probably did in 2012. I think Harden probably being number one on that list. And even Iguodala, who he was an all-star for the only time this season before this in 2011, 12, but I don't think anybody saw him as, you know, future multi-time champion finals MVP. You know, his legend has certainly grown since these Olympics, but a lot of it is just timing. You know, I, th- I think if you put together a team in like 2016 and got all the A-list talent, I think you could, you could have put together a team that would rival 92, right? Because we've, we've never seen like LeBron and Steph on the same team. And you would, at that point you would have had like prime Kawhi to add to the mix, you know, prime Durant. You know, I, I think if you could get LeBron, Curry, Kawhi, Durant all on one team you, you could still have Chris Paul you could have Paul George like I, I think if you built a team around around 2016 2017 all those guys in their primes get pretty close to the 92 team yeah I yeah I mean I think you could definitely do just sort of a, a best of the 2010s versus the best of the 90s and get it pretty close um but the you know we're I'm looking at uh I'm looking at uh, a top 40 rankings by um, that one guy. I can't think of his name uh, who does like a lot of pods with Nate Duncan about like historical stuff. And I mean, just the amount of just like not top 50 players, but just like top 25 players on that 92 yeah. team. I mean, it's, it's pretty staggering. And like they were, that was not a weak era of, of basketball like the the early 90s like that there was a ton of talent in the league then um because mm-hmm. that was that was pre-expansion of the the raptors and, and grizzlies and um you just had just big time playoff battles year after year with just some some really great rosters so i mean it wasn't a watered down league at all and i think um 
it would have it would have been a really interesting contrast in styles because you had just so many talented big men um, on that '92 team. Who, I mean, we saw what Pau Gasol did to the this 2012 team. Like they would have just had zero answer for for guys like Robinson and and Ewing mm-hmm. and even like Malone. But um, they also just didn't shoot threes very much at all. Like they had Chris Mullen. And I mean, they had guys that could make threes, but like they, they wouldn't have, I mean, it's, just, it's tough to compare eras, but just in terms of like all time greats and guys in their prime, I think, I think 92. Well, 92 didn't even have a one who I, for whatever reason, you know, didn't end up playing for the USA. I, I believe he played in 96, but you know, I, I think if he takes a Leitner spot, I, I think that that probably officially would have sealed it for the 92 team. Um, but speaking of the Leitner spot, seeing Anthony Davis, uh, I, I think maybe the only time I've ever seen him play basketball without a t-shirt under his Jersey <laughs> ever, like in college, it was always that little, like extra, extra small Nike tee, you know, that was that like barely made it over his shoulders. And ever since he's been in the NBA, he's kind of worn that, you know, that shoulder protective shirt. And you just see like how skinny he was at the time. I mean, I, I would bet he's like 30 to 40 pounds lighter than he probably is right now. At least. It was the same with like Giannis too. If you watch Giannis from like five years ago or six years yeah. ago or whatever, it's crazy. And I remember people thinking that he wouldn't be able to put on weight because I mean, he really was that skinny and I, I, Giannis has probably faced some of the same questions, but you know, I think some people thought he would just always be like that. You know, it would be kind of a Durant or like a Garnett situation where guys guys are able to add strength but it just doesn't really show that much and you know it took him a few years to do it but I, I like I said I think probably 35 pound difference I know he was listed at 220 coming out of Kentucky and this year they have him listed at 253 for the Lakers still not big enough to play center nope no not this not when you got Dwight Howard anything else from the game you know kind of going back to the the TV the presentation it there was just not much of an atmosphere at all. And when they would when they would zoom out and show these panning shots of the arena, it looked completely empty above the top level. And it, it just, it is the Olympics. You know, you're not playing at one team's arena, but it, it just felt like a very just kind of meh crowd, you know. And even, even during big plays or dunks or big threes, it was just kind of a subdued uh, type of audience. You know, it, it didn't, there really wasn't a lot of atmosphere to begin the game or, or certainly not even late in the game. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you think some of that is part of, you know, like uh, London and Great Britain not really being like a basketball country? I mean, I know people like travel for the Olympics and stuff, but I mean, you're not talking about like if this was played in like China or, you know, even uh, I, I don't know. There are plenty of other examples. If this was in Spain, like I think the crowd would just be better. And I don't mean Spain as in like, you know, if Spain was playing, I just mean in general. Um, but I, maybe that's part of it. I'm not really sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm guessing that tickets are pretty expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, I, I mean, it, there's just dozens of countries where you would have gotten a packed house and, um, I mean, there were, just, there were like a lot of celebrities and like not, not a list celebrities necessarily, but. Um, quote unquote celebrities. So, like, I, I mean, I think the funniest celebrity sighting was Jeremy Piven sitting next to David Beckham, and 
Jeremy Piven just looking extremely excited to be talking to David Beckham. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it, the UK is not a, not a basketball-starved country. No, and I, I don't think, even though this is the matchup that everybody wanted to see, like, I, I don't think a lot of people from the U.S. were like, hey, let's let's pack up and head over to London to catch the gold medal game. You know, like, nobody's doing that from the U.S. And if you are, you're a really rich person who's just going to hang out and kind of rub elbows with people at the Olympics. Like like you said, James, I think, I think like, the point of entry is probably the biggest issue. Like, Spain had a few fans that they kept showing who were, you know, kind of dressed as if it was, like, a World Cup soccer game. You know, guys wearing dresses, people decked out in face paint, flags, all that. But it seemed like that was maybe two percent of the entire crowd and the rest of it was like again it just felt like being at a tennis match you know where they pan to the crowd there and everybody's just kind of sitting having a nice time you know sweaters on yeah. stuff like that it, it just it was not a rabid environment whatsoever and it i don't know it, it just it just didn't really have the feel like what was at stake was actually at stake yeah it was it was a pretty pretty subdued crowd and i think it would have gotten it would have gotten pretty loud like if if spain had been like up six or something with like mm-hmm. six minutes to go i think the crowd might have gotten into it a little bit but um it was definitely not a the majority of the people there wanted spain to win i think and there mm-hmm. were not a ton of moments where it seemed like that was all that likely yeah i think had that been the case it would have turned into like a march madness first round game situation yeah. where yeah, you yeah, have yeah. a bu- you have a bunch of fans there to watch kentucky and north carolina but all of a sudden, two seed Georgetown is on the ropes to some 15 and then the crowd shifts. But yeah, I, I think for the most part, despite it being a fairly close game, um, you know, the, I don't think the crowd influenced it one way or the other. How do you guys feel about the uh, no goaltending rule once the ball hits the rim? I don't mind it. I know it's something that every Olympics comes around and there was always some article written about how the USA is adjusting to this and players forget about it and international players are used to it. Uh, there was, I think there was one point in the game where I think the U.S. had like a breakaway layup, and I want to say it was Rudy Fernandez, like almost swatted it off the rim, but it just trickled in. But other than that, it just it didn't really seem to, to change the game at all. Fernandez, there was one where Carmelo shot like a 14-foot bank shot, and Fernandez came from the weak side and just tried to sw- like swag it as soon as it like hit the rim. Um but that one ended up going in, and I know he tried to like do another putback dunk. That I think the ball ended up going in, but you're not as worried about that when when that's the case. But yeah, go ahead, James. It it reminded me of like uh, when I used to play beer pong, and like sometimes <laughs> yeah. you would go to like places, and they'd be like, "Oh yeah, you can you can you can like swat the ball and like um, knock it out when it's spinning on the cup and stuff." And I would just. I would never sink to that level. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to play a clean game, and I felt like I felt like you. I felt like Team USA was like that too. Where it's like, even though this is technically a rule here, we're we're not going to sink to this level. <laughs> uh, I love that. This, this kind of plays into the discussion. It doesn't really have to do with the Olympics necessarily, but it, it's been raised, um, you know, on podcasts and whatnot. Of like, what do you think of the idea of teams having a little bit of license to change the rules? or change the dimensions of their home arena, you know, like within reason. But if one team, you know, like the Rockets, for example, if they want to move the line back one foot all the way around the arc and just for their arena, or one team for whatever reason has, you know, feels better about playing that FIBA rule where you can knock the ball off the rim. When you're playing at that arena, 
that rule applies. Like, do you, do you like that idea of giving teams some license to, to kind of make home field advantage a real thing in the NBA? I I'm pretty against that, to be honest. I like, I don't know. I think, I think that I, is there any sport that does that? If you, I mean, they're, you know, baseball has the different dimension fields, yeah. but other Baseball's than that, the only one. Yeah. I, I think that makes think sense. Yeah. I, I don't think it's, I think it's like apples to oranges, you know, I mean, the baseball thing, yeah, like the dimensions are different, and there's a handful of parks that play very favorable to pitchers, very favorable to hitters, but um, you can't like game it as like it's not like baseball teams are just every year they're changing their dimensions. Like some right. sometimes they move fences in, but um, like I think NBA teams they're just so diabolical with just trying to take advantage of any possible like thing that they can think of. Like, and like the Rockets are probably exhibit a of this, but like, it would just get so old. I think like every year, these teams just try to come up with BS ways to, to win an extra game or something like that. I think it would just be a lot more trouble than it'd be worth. I mean, you're, I don't think you're getting any, a single extra viewer by doing that. (laughs) No, I don't. I don't think so. And and ultimately, like outside of moving the three point line, like that one, I I think could be a little bit fun. But as far as like changing the actual dimensions of the court, I think that would be a little too far. Like you you don't want to be playing on a ninety four foot court one night and all of a sudden it's eighty two feet long the next night. Well, like what if the Bucks moved in the free throw line to like eight feet? Like, (laughs) yeah, I mean, in theory, it affects both teams. But I, I I don't know. I mean, well, here's a question for you, James, for baseball, like how much of it is the team actually determining things like changing dimensions versus this is the space we had. This is just how we had to build the stadium. I think you probably are seeing a lot of the ballparks that have probably come up in the past three to five years might've been, uh, there might've been some say from like baseball people about like the dimensions, but uh, you know, anything that was built, even 10 years ago, I would say was 100% just the architect's design. And I mean, it's like the, the giants always stand out to me as a place that's very pitcher friendly. And the the Rockies are the obvious like hitter friendly one. But uh, a lot of that is just the, uh, in the physical conditions of like building a park in Denver, you know, like you're just not going to, be able to have it be a, a pitcher friendly park unless you just make it gigantic. So a couple more notes that I have on Team USA's lead up to the gold medal game. Uh, they they had a couple shaky exhibitions before heading over to London. This is when they they usually kind of do a mini tour, uh, usually around the U.S. or I think they they've occasionally played games in other spots in North America, but they they only beat Brazil by twelve in one of these exhibitions, a game that they were you know, casually favored by like 30 plus they trailed by 10 at the end of the first quarter of that game, uh, ended up coming back and winning. They were played really closely again by Argentina in one of those exhibitions. And then they get to pool play, uh, which kicked off on July 29th of 2012. They beat France fairly easily, uh, a French team that I believe had seven NBA players or six NBA players, uh, including Tony Parker, Nick Batum on that roster. Uh, they, they blow out Tunisia uh, in a game that they they only led by 13 at the half. And 
from from what I've been able to garner, Tunisia was like hands down the worst team in this entire tournament. So Coach K benched Kobe, LeBron, Durant, Chris Paul, and Tyson Chandler to begin the second half because because they were only up by 13. And the group of Kevin Love, Carmelo Anthony, Iguodala, Darren Williams, and Westbrook won on a 21 to three run to to open the half and and kind of pull that one away. Then they have that just massive win over Nigeria. And Lithuania is actually the team that ends up giving them the closest game through all of this exhibition or tournament play. They only beat Lithuania by five, 99 to 94. And Team USA averaged 115 points per game for the tournament. So they were held 16 points under that average in this game. The next highest, by the way, 86 points. So, I mean, USA is just blowing everybody out of the water uh, despite having a couple of close games. But uh, the main reason for all of this is I want to talk about Linus Klaza putting 25 points on Team USA in that pool play game against Lithuania. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah, I mean, Lithuania's had some, like, solid NBA players, right? Like, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank on <laughs> a few of them, but Kaleza, uh not exactly uh, the guy you expect to, to go off. No, I'm trying to locate a roster here. Uh, and, I, yeah, I think Kaleza was the main guy. From that team, yeah, uh, I don't, I, I, don't think anybody else. Oh, Valanciunas was on that team. Okay, yeah, uh, young Valanciunas. Uh, he, uh, doesn't. Oh, he only he didn't play that much. He played sixty nine total yeah. minutes across six games, but he was only twenty at the time. Yeah, Darius Sangaila was on that team, so it was it was a loaded it was a loaded team for Lithuania, to <laughs> say the least. Do you guys have any other notes? I mean, at one point. The commentators called a dunk a dunk shot, which was horrifying. Um, no, I, well, I I guess one thing I have is I think this is the more fun version of Kevin Love. I kind of hate, like, I understand why Kevin Love turned into this like skinny three point shooter, but I I think it was this is this is the Kevin Love that I that I love, the one who was still able to shoot threes, but mostly was like he'd still get like three offensive rebounds a game. I thought he was good. I thought he, yeah. uh, I mean, that, that Westbrook plus minus I mentioned, that, that would have been worse without, without Kevin Love. Um, there were a lot of just, I mean, you're not going to see a ton of hustle plays from, from a Team USA, but uh, Kevin Love was, was making some, some hustle plays. And uh, I think he actually might have had a, a clean block on, on Pau Gasol at one point that he got, that he got an unfair whistle on. All right. Well, I, I think that'll do it. You know, we didn't go quite as deep on this one as we have with, with some of those Western Conference playoff games from the 2000s. But uh, nonetheless, really fun to go back and and discuss the, you know, the politics of this team, the rosters and, and of course, the game uh, against Spain. I think for next week, guys, we're going to switch gears again and look back at a draft telecast. So, you know, James, you and I have, have kind of gone back and done some redrafts and look back at a lot of drafts from the last 20 years. Um, this time we'll focus on the actual telecast and, you know, watch at least the lottery, maybe do the full first round, maybe check in on some of the notable picks if there are any in the second round and just see where it leads to us. I mean, I I think there's been a a distinct, uh, lack of comedy offerings in a lot of the games that we've watched so far. And I would hope that, that doing a draft, even though it's not that long ago, I mean, we're, we're looking at 2012, the Anthony Davis draft. Uh, so eight years ago, you know, Michael Kidd Gilchrist went second. Thomas Robinson went fifth. Uh, I, I think that that alone, like the promise of those two picks, should should be enough to 
uh, to whet our appetite for what should be a really fun draft to watch. Yeah, definitely looking forward to that one. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.